You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is William. You remember my name after a week's absence? I was so tempted to say Charlie, but I didn't. Okay, well, goodbye for another week then. Fine. Okay. Unless there's <laughs> anything interesting happened. If you do that, okay. if you if you walk out and slam that door, I'll get Charlie back. You know that, right? Okay, Charlie's pretty good though, isn't he? Actually, so I'm a little bit torn here. That was a good show last week. So I know. You know what can I say? Oh. Yeah, and Charlie's app, Dark Noise, is a good app. So you know, if you have the chance, go ahead and look check it out. Now, I want to talk about news. We're going to do this as a barn burn episode. We're going to go fast. Try and keep up. Ming-Chi Kuo. Uh, yes, Ming-Chi Kuo, right? Oh, sorry. You're... you're familiar with him, right? It's an analyst. Yes, I thought you were asking me a question, and I, I didn't understand the answer. Yes. No. Uh, what <laughs> What has he discovered this week? Well, this week, he's claiming that the 2020 iPhone could use a new metal frame chassis, which borrows some of the design elements from the iPhone 4. Yeah, I liked my iPhone 4. I liked your iPhone 4, too. Yes, I noticed you... Uh, I was eyeing it, it. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, next year's iPhone, which is believed to include 5G connectivity, could include this major design change that alters how the phone has been constructed. Uh, he describes it as significant and that it will be a major selling point for the phone. I can tell you right now, that's going to go over really well, considering how major selling points like more camera and better battery life have gone over among some people. It's got an aluminum frame. Yeah. Yeah, lead balloon. But <laughs> the the point is that when you do this kind of thing, that um, it, it can potentially lessen the negative impact of metal shielding the internal antenna, right? If, uh, you know, it, it, you, you want to be able to transmit high-frequency radio signals, and radio doesn't go well through metal. So if you have the glass back, then the radio goes through the glass back. And the the point of doing this is going to also increase stability. So the the cost of construction will increase for the metal frame by about 15 to 60%. The glass case will cost uh, will probably go up about 40 to 50%. If tempered glass is used for a grooved cover, then the middle mid frame will go up by 20 to 25 to 30% respectively. Right, a lot of numbers there, but basically, it's an interesting construction. It's probably required to make five G work well. Mm, that's what I was wondering. Yes. Okay. So just just antenna science is hard. It really is, and materials get in the way and block signal in all kinds of fun ways. And so this is this is kind of what's going on here. Are you saying though? There are other features, of course. Basically, are you saying that the next iPhone is going to look pretty but cost even more? Well, this is an interesting thing, right? We had we had phones that cost pretty much consistent all the way across in this sort of $600 to $800 range for a long time. And then things jumped up with iPhone 10 to the $1,000 phone, and they stayed there for a generation with the 10s Max and so forth. And now they're coming back down again and settling back in that same kind of frame consistent with history. Okay. You know, this, this generation's phones, the... Uh, 11, 11 Pro and Pro Max are all back in that kind of cost where where things were before. So this is better. Uh, so 
right now is better. You think when the next one's come out, it'll go back up to being the the more expensive one, and then maybe dip down afterwards. Apple's just on a roller coaster. It's possible. It is possible that that the costs will increase now. There, there are other costs too, right? The 5G modem is new technology and more expensive. So there, there's there's a bunch of stuff going on here. It's possible that that phone could be more expensive and then it pings on back down a little bit. But it remains to be seen. We are looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Apple just released iOS and iPadOS 13.1. This was days after they released 13.0. Remember back when I was talking to Charlie last week, we'd said... And 13.1 will come on September 30th (laughs) and wait for it. And we were right about waiting for it. However, Apple announced after we'd said that, that you didn't have to wait quite as long. They released it on the 24th. I I forget that every year there is a gap between, say, iOS and uh, macOS. Uh, And a couple of times it's been over a month, just about. But this time it just just seemed messy with all these different bits and different versions. There there wasn't always a gap. The gaps really became apparent in, in, let's say, the Snow Leopard days, 10.6 and so forth, where uh, Steve Jobs, back when he was still alive, got up on stage and said, listen, it's just too hard to release everything all at once. It's the same people working on the stuff. So we're going to go ahead and separate out the releases a little bit. And that works as long as things aren't dependent upon everything being updated. And they are. Yeah, I know you're going with that. Yes. Reminders, for example. I noticed that one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So so reminders. If you set a reminder on your Mac, will it necessarily work on your phone? If your phone is on iOS 13. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I found that the other way around that it so, doesn't work. So I I did it that Mac. way. If I set a reminder on my Mac, it does actually work on my phone. So that part happened. But doing it the other way around, what'd you find? Um, absolutely nothing. I got a message saying, you know, you can't do it. Basically, I've forgotten the wording for it. But uh, the database is moved, which is whoops. Well, it is and it yeah. isn't. I mean, I think it's serious for a lot of people. Uh, I use OmniFocus rather than reminders, but you get people. Um, uh, you've spoken with the makers of Fantastical before, and I noticed uh, they've had to put up um, blog reports, support documents, explaining to their users who do use Fantastical's reminders thing uh, that this Apple move has caused problems for that and when it will be fixed and all this stuff. So it, there's a yeah. ripples on for so many people. But there are, there are. And of course, HomePod hasn't been updated, and HomePod relies on Siri shortcuts that work with your phone. And if your phone is updated and the HomePod isn't, then there's a weird shortcut mismatch. I realize I don't actually know how I'll know when my HomePod has been. Will it tell me? I don't know. Okay. Is this the first update to a HomePod? I can't even remember. I'm really sorry. Um, so, so people are suggesting that this update period looks really weird, mm. right? To, to the consumer who isn't in the know, it's completely plausible to say things like... Um, it's really odd to see Apple futzing stuff with 13.0 or that this isn't good for their reputation that, you know, quote, I've had my members of my family asking why there's a 13.1 already. They were assuming it was because 13.0 was rubbish. Which is not unreasonable, to be fair. Yes. So let's tell you why this happened. How did we get here? Okay. Previously on iOS 13. Yeah. A plausible answer to this is that it comes down to 
the American president, Donald Trump. How, you ask, is Donald Trump involved in iOS releases? Actually, no. I was kind of avoiding asking that, but... <laughs> okay, so uh, there, there is this trade war with China between the U.S. and China, and Donald Trump seems to like to talk about tariffs and putting tariffs on goods because he thinks of things as being in a trade imbalance. And, of course, the, what, what actually happens is that when he does that, the people who pay the tariffs aren't the companies in America who now have to pay more for their goods to be delivered from China or manufactured in China. It is actually the consumer that has to pay more. And Apple wanted to go ahead and get the iPhone shipped to the U.S. before the tariffs were coming into effect. And in order to do that, they had to have 13.0 ready to go on the phones. And in order to do, and, and, and that was required because the new version of the Apple Watch, Watch 5, uses WatchOS 6. Series 5 Watch uses WatchOS 6, which requires iOS 13. And so all of this sort of cascaded from that. Yeah, I'm just struggling with the sea of numbers. How does anybody manage to actually work all these things? But, okay, yes, I'm with now, you so now far. Now, of course, this this wasn't, you know, th th this was required if the tariffs had come into effect. Apple did get waivers for the tariffs even after President Trump said that Apple would not. It got waivers for some of them, wasn't it? Two-thirds of what it applied for Something. for the Mac Pro, and I, um, I don't know. If there's any well, the Mac Pro is being produced in Texas anyway. Yes, but a lot of the so, components uh, have to come from yes. Texas. So, yeah. Well, sure. So all, all of this comes down to that. And so, yeah, it was a race to ship. It's not because it was rubbish because they wanted to ship rubbish. It was rubbish because they were trying to get it out of the door so they could get it on a boat. And that's why 13.1 was in, you know, being worked on in the background. Of course, 13.1 and these .1 releases are always being worked on mm. in the background anyway. But that it was public so soon was was partly due to this. Okay. I mean, we should re-emphasize that we don't know, but I see your logic there. I said plausible explanation. Yeah. Uh, how about I go with, isn't 13.1 great? An iPad Pro, isn't it brilliant? iPad Pro, sorry. iPad OS, isn't it just great? I love this stuff now. iPad OS is really hot. Yeah, iPad OS is very good. Yeah. It is. And shortcuts. I mean, I still want more, but shortcuts, eh? Oh, You're just greedy. Frankly, yes. But um, I found it really quick to adapt. Uh, shortcuts is now no longer this separate app that you download if you know about it. It's right there in your system, and they've made it simpler to use. And I thought I'd have trouble converting because you know, you've learned one way, you're effectively learning another. But it's so well done. It's, yeah, I think... Um, I haven't had any I had I'm really, problems with my old ones I had to rewrite for I'm, a second, but that's all. What? My old shortcuts written in the old way. A couple of them didn't quite work in the new, but rewriting them was the work of moments. So, hey. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to macOS Catalina, where it will be possible to compose shortcuts on the Mac. Is that definite? I can't remember because I'm not running the beta. I haven't seen it, and and I just I I'm not running it. the beta either. But it was something that was discussed. It was something that was shown. Whether or not it makes it to actual release is right. another matter because there were plenty of things that didn't make it to iOS 13's release That's yet. True, right? Including uh, you know a, a good example is you remember you remember that one of the things that came up during the beta process for iOS 13 was the uh, the, the computational attention 
adjustment. Oh, yes. Where you could be on a FaceTime video call, and they would computationally adjust where your eyes were so that it would look like the other person was looking at the camera. I'd forgotten about that. We didn't get that. Oh. Nope. Oh. I'm going to have to actually look at the lens instead. When I call... When I call you and I see you, you're looking off in the distance or above me, and it's really disconcerting, William. I wish you'd pay attention. That isn't me. Uh, I get somebody to sit in while I make tea. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot that Apple can do, but they can't fix that bit. No. No. No, they can't. But you could, you could, you know, make your make your kettle into a HomeKit kettle. I could, yes. Uh, there are smart kettles that I could remote control and have them boil from afar, even with no water in them. So, yeah, that would be good. So hmm. that's just that's that's just pie in the sky talk. But HomeKit is interesting because one of the things that's in the newer iPhones, the iPhone 11s, is the U1 ultra wideband chip. Yes. And what's cool about that is that that's really good for situational awareness for for you know, micro-location. Mm. You know, we talk about Wi-Fi and, and Bluetooth beacons, and those things are good in terms of generally knowing where an antenna is coming from, but but the U1 Ultra Wideband lets you know almost exactly where something's coming from, granular and sort of almost on a room-by-room -room basis. And with that level of fine detail, you could control advanced features. Uh, you could control turning on lights or fans and things like that when a person enters the room because it has that level of awareness. But also it means that you can have devices that respond to that chip, not just for location, but also for using it as, as the communications module. So you could do wall outlets or light switches that communicate over that ultra-wideband. Goodness. I knew about you one, but it never occurred to me that there was a HomeKit element. Uh, is that why Apple's done it? Uh, remains to be seen. I mean, they, they patented or, or proposed a patent on this kind of thing, but whether or not it actually happens is another matter. But they, in their proposal, in their patent application, they're talking about outlets that have a power-gating module controlled by processors configured to couple electrical power from mains using this ultra-wideband remote command. Well, I might get more interested in HomeKit again. I kind of went off because I've had some problems in this household with it but um yeah i mean i i love HomeKit. i've i've had some devices that are a bit flaky um my in-wall light switches which were made by insignia from best buy um are flaky so much so that that and, and they've been flaky from day one but you know best buy and insignia stopped supporting amazon alexa with them and they kept working with google home for a good long while they still work with HomeKit, but they've discontinued their app and they're actually giving credit back to anyone who bought an insignia product wow Okay. And I need to call them up and give them all seven of my serial numbers for these things. <laughs> okay. Right. Which you presumably yeah. keep in one password ready to just chuck out the moment it's needed. Mm, serial numbers? No. <gasps> so I'm going to be digging through boxes. Yeah. You keep the boxes? I kept. Okay. Right. That feels more organized. I was prepared for this day. Okay. <laughs> But uh, but but this is great because this could be used for anything from just in the home. It could also be a business level kind of thing where you could have whole floors controlled by this kind of personal presence and awareness. You know, we talked in the past about U1 being used for identifying airdrop recipients. Mm. But I am am really hot on the idea of it working in terms of HomeKit. What I like about HomeKit is that... HomeKit doesn't rely on the internet working for most accessories. The internet can go down and the devices will work on my local network. 
There are some devices that require the installation of a manufacturer's app to be able to set up and configure and stuff like that. I prefer the devices that don't, but I can't do that for every one of them. Sure. No. Yeah. So that's that's where we're at on that. It's going to be interesting. Now, that actually dovetails into something else that happened yesterday. Yesterday, Amazon had an event. Yes, no, I know. I'm aware of this, but I was away. So uh, there's some. I read something like there are 70 announcements. Remember, that can't be right. Pretty much. Okay. No, 100. 100 announcements. 120. Even 120. Right. I think you're just making these figures up now. But okay. I List am. them all in alphabetical yes. order. Yes, I am. No. Okay. I will not. Dewey Decimal System? So, well, I mean, if I... Let's see. Echo. Echo Frame. Echo Loop. Echo Studio. Echo Dot. Oh, look, I'm out of order. Echo Dot with a clock face on I'm it. I'm not regretting this. Um, uh, no, actually, yeah, I am I, regretting this. Okay, you. right. Yeah. But but let me tell you this. They introduced, they introduced a number of things, and some of them are mildly interesting, especially if you like Amazon Alexa. If you like Alexa, this is great for you. What I found really interesting is that one of the things they addressed, besides spending minutes up front talking about privacy and how they respect it and how they're protecting you, was that they are very, very interested in what they're calling struggle-free setup. Okay. And that they are going to put together a panel of regular consumers, not experts, to test the setup of these devices and then show you on Amazon.com which ones are approved by them as struggle-free. Struggle-free. That's the new plug-and-play. I quite like it, actually. And to this end, besides the things that typically work on Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or Zigbee, because Amazon Alexa also supports Zigbee as a protocol, they have come up with their own proprietary protocol, Mm -hmm. which they're going to use for devices. And... The beauty of that is that it will make setup even more reliable and more simple. They are going to be using the 900 megahertz band. And then the beauty of using the 900 megahertz band is that that band is is open for consumer use, right? Just as 2.4 and 5 gigahertz are for Wi-Fi and things like that. Using the 900 is kind of an uh, an open, unregulated, less regulated space. Typically used for cordless phones from a few decades ago. Not so many people have those cordless phones as much. So, you know, using that as the space to broadcast and transmit this proprietary protocol to control their stuff works for me because it means that it's not reliant on the Internet. Okay. You, clearly, you don't like the Internet. I like that. I like the Internet, but what I, I, I think is absurd is if you're in your own home and you're trying to control something in your own home, mm. what is faster, going up to a server and coming back down to control the thing or just talking directly to it in the wall. It's just pushing the switch on the wall. Can I just throw yeah. that in? Pushing the switch on the wall first. Second, voice control. And of course, Amazon is all in on voice control, which is why they're putting Alexa everywhere. Putting Alexa from from your eyeglasses, putting Alexa into a ring that you can wear on your finger made out of titanium. Putting Alexa into little wall plugs that can also conveniently charge your phone and or other accessories. Like they have a little motion detector and a, and a night light sensor and things like that that also plug into this little tiny, tiny Amazon Echo that, that plugs into the wall. And basically what they're getting at is that they can put Amazon Alexa and the voice assistant everywhere in the house and also out of the house. They're doing it in the car, partnering with people for a car, G Amazon board. Uh, 
I think I saw Toyota. A bunch of people are on board for Amazon Alexa in the car. And of course, Pioneer and the aftermarket are doing that too. So they are making a strong push, believing in voice first and believing in home control. And and it's it's intriguing. It really is. Now, they, they didn't do a smartwatch. They danced all around the smartwatch. In terms of wearables, they did the earbuds with Amazon Alexa that can also trigger Siri or Google Assistant, depending on what your phone is. They... Um, and then, of course, the ring and the eyeglasses. So they're they're very much talking about personal wearable kind of stuff that isn't a watch. How do the eyeglasses look? A little chunky. Okay. So it's like NHS specs, so, as we would call them here. I mean, yeah. in, instead of putting bone conduction for reproduction of the audio in them, they put actual little speakers directed at the ears. Okay. And... You know, Google had Google Glass, and they made the temple pretty wide and flat, but thin. Sorry, what's the temple? I don't know that term. The the side piece of the glasses, oh, right. the part that goes over your ear and connects to the front. Oh, no, I did not know that. Cool. Okay. Yeah, that is the term. And Amazon has gone ahead and made them wide and chunky with battery inside and stuff. And it's it's just... It's not an attractive design. I think I think they have some work to do. But they recognize they have some work to do. They call these things day one kind of releases. And so for their day one releases, it's a limited beta kind of product. People have to be invited to get it. Um, and they won't be producing a whole ton of them. What they'll do then is decide if it works. And if it does, then they'll find a way to make it better. Which is what they did with Echo Dot ages ago. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm interested intellectually. I'm, just, I'm more in on HomeKit than I am. We have an Amazon Echo around here. It just doesn't get used that much. So... Well, so if you've bought your devices carefully, then everything that you've bought for HomeKit may also be Amazon Alexa compatible. Including my HomePod. Well, except There that. you go. The one thing I had to ask. Okay. Right. Now, in, in my house, I have a number of things that are, but not everything. For instance, my doorbell cam, because I got rid of Ring and Amazon favors Ring because they own them. Um, I, uh, my camera won't work with, with Alexa at this time. I'm okay with that. Um, the but but they're talking about doing conversational stuff through the doorbell cam, like when someone rings and they identify that it's a a package courier service, Alexa will ask if they can leave the package. Whoa, okay. Right. Yeah. So so there's some interesting things afoot, and we're going to keep watching this. But uh, at this time, I prefer HomeKit. I'm pretty much all in on HomeKit, but most of my devices could be made to work with Alexa just as well. Actually, you've made me want to go back to HomeKit. I've just got a couple of devices that don't work at all from Ikea. They've stopped working. And we have a weird thing where the lights are supposed to come on when you come home, but instead they go off. So I just go reset everything and start again. So, yes, you've got me interested. I will help you with that later after the show. I want to keep talking for just a moment. So the United Nations has included Apple in its 2019 Climate Action Awards for the company's efforts in using renewable energy sources and their donation to social intervention causes. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, anything the UN does, mm -hmm. I think, is rather, it's, a bit, it's a bit big, really. And there's Apple in with 14 other projects around the world, only 14 in the world. Um, and none of them are ones you recognize as, you know, there's no Microsoft there, for example, as far as I know this. All sorts of things. Well, so the, the United Nations singled out Apple for its emissions reduction and noting that the company is on a mission to make its products without taking away from the earth. 
And of course, Lisa Jackson, Vice President of Environment Policy and Social Initiatives, said that at Apple, we take our responsibility seriously by leaving the world better than we found it. By running 100% of our operations on renewable energy and driving our entire global supply chain to do the same, we will bring more than six gigawatts of clean power online next year. From restoring mangrove forests in Colombia to launching a new clean energy fund in China, we know that we must keep challenging ourselves to innovate and do more to take on the crime crisis globally. So that's that's really cool. Now, say what you will about climate crisis, say what you will about the United Nations. I don't think anyone would argue that restoring mangrove forests is a bad idea or that launching a clean energy fund is a bad idea or that you know, preserving grasslands in Kenya is a bad idea. All of those things are good ideas. Yes, I'm, I hesitate only because why haven't Samsung and the rest copied these elements of Apple's technique as well? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? The world converted. It would be nice. It would. Um, but it, it takes someone to lead the way. It really does. It takes someone to show leadership to lead the way. And that's what we're seeing here. On the flip side of things, Facebook. Remember Facebook? Yes. Oh, not again. Not again. No, stop it. They're, they're <laughs> good guys now. They've promised that. <gasps> How dare you? All right. Break it to me gently. So two things. Two things. First of all, they quietly admitted that, you know, before they'd said that there were maybe some third-party apps that had maybe a little bit more access than, than they possibly should have had to uh, your data. Okay. Right, that's that's new. Um Facebook admitted that it had suspended tens of thousands of apps for improperly sucking up users' personal information. Kind of admitting that that you know the scale of its data privacy issues were far larger than they'd previously acknowledged. 400 apps, 10,000 apps. Uh, it's all the same, isn't How it? How many apps before it's wrong? Just one. I don't know. That's Does a it? good question. So last month, less, less actually less than a month after a group of state attorneys general opened an investigation into Facebook over potential antitrust violations, the U.S. Department of Justice will soon begin its own inquiry into the social network's business practices. So Reuters reports that the DOG is ready to probe Facebook over antitrust issues. Oh, but this could all be for previous incidents, and they're now completely squeaky clean. Well, the problem with antitrust is is that once they're found guilty of having done something that, that violates the antitrust laws, then there will need to be a remedy, and the remedy could be a fine. Mm. The remedy could be breaking them up. The remedy could be a prohibition on, on entering some part of the market. Hmm. You know, it, it or or it could drag on and on for years, and they could be vindicated at the end. Ah, okay. Well, dragging on for years and years, I see that one coming. I wouldn't like to call it for vindication, but dragging on, that seems about normal. Yeah, that it could be. So Apple has so far avoided a similar formal investigation, but lawmakers have been making noise about it. And so it's... Uh, it's it's uncertain what will happen, but the targets here are clearly Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Uh, do we know when the next thing is we'll hear what will? No. no. Okay. So I just have to keep no. watching that one as well. Okay. The wheels of justice grind slowly. Indeed. That was very deep. 
It was. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about an interview that I've got that I'm going to play in just a second. This is something that, that I conducted with the fine people at Isotope, John Weiner at Isotope, I think. And um, Isotope is a piece of software. Isotope makes software, rather, and including a piece called RX. And we use RX in the production of this show. And so there are times when, when you hear production quality and you go, that doesn't sound good. And or that doesn't sound as good as it has other times, right? That's the thing is that we may be doing production differently. I may not be present, or or we've had other disasters going on with the recording. Yeah, I've but popped up frequently. Loads of Sorry, you were saying. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Frequently, RX saves us. Frequently, RX helps us get the smooth, clean audio that you deserve. And I uh, I just wanted to get the chance to talk with them about it and some of the things that they're trying to do. All right. Welcome to this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is John Weiner from Isotope. Hello. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. What What, what is Isotope as, as a company? What kind of products do they make? So Isotope makes products to help audio producers, music producers, and other uh produce excellent quality results uh, in and around music production, post-production for film and television. Um, and uh, even we'll find our products sometimes living in forensic audio labs and others like that. But our, our primary products are designed for music production and for post-production. Okay. Now, obviously those products have been around for a little while, but you've been a producer longer than That's the, the products have existed. So tell me a little bit about your history. Sure. Um, well, Isotope has been around for, I think we're going on our 19th year. Um, but you're right, I'm older than 19 years old and started working in the audio business in the early 80s. Um, the genesis of my career after I was a, a, a mediocre musician was um, uh, becoming a recording engineer, mixing engineer, and producer. Uh, and that was right around the the beginnings of the digital audio era or age that we're now living squarely within. Um, I think my first Mac was a Mac 512. It was probably 1985. Anyway, but uh, the new developments of the day were MIDI and, and, um, and then not long thereafter, uh, disc-based uh, digital audio recording. Um, I developed a specialty in and around record mastering and uh, continue that to this day and have been fortunate enough to work with some of my musical heroes uh, along the way. Um, and now currently I, I bring all that experience to bear at Isotope. I also am a professor of music production at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Just for, for myself and our listeners, can you tell us some of those musical heroes that you got to work with? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, probably apart from working with my uncle, who is, <laughs> has been a hero my whole life, you know, the, the one that's, that comes to mind first is David Bowie. Uh, I remastered all of the RCA catalog, uh, starting with um, The Man Who Sold the World all the way through Ashes to Ashes and everything in between. In fact, today I am actually wearing my Ziggy Stardust t-shirt, and I don't usually pull it out. I don't know why I did today, but... Um, and that was a bit of a pinch me moment because I was a, a big Bowie fan uh, beginning at the age of about 11. 
um, and then woke up one day some 17 years later or something like that and found myself working on uh, Ziggy Stardust. And uh, that was a big thrill. But I've worked with James Taylor and Aerosmith and uh, for classical music nerds, Kiri Taikanawa and the London Symphony Orchestra and Gerard Schwartz and Miles Davis and the, the list. You know, I'm not very good at name dropping, but I guess I did a decent job just now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, Nirvana. There's another one. Um, that was kind of a fun moment for me. What did you uh, do on Nirvana? I worked on the Bleach record. And the, the funny thing for me about that record and and the punchline to this story is that's why I never went into A&R, is when I first heard that record, it was in the early days of Sub Pop, uh, which is a record label based in Seattle that ultimately became a big record label based in LA, then Seattle. Um, but um, when I first heard that record, I, I thought, well, these guys are pretty good, but I never saw Nirvana coming in the way that they <laughs> turned into Nirvana. Um, Anyway, I enjoyed working on that record. I enjoy working on all the records I get to work on, quite honestly. What are some of the challenges that you find presented themselves to people producing in, in the early days? Oh, boy. Well, you know, the obvious ones are maintaining quality control. Um, you know, the... The recording studio, as it came to be starting in the early 1970s, that was a response to the development of multi-track tape machines and large consoles with, you know, the, those endlessly long desks that have lots and lots of faders and knobs on them. Um, that was a, uh, a technological development that enabled us to have more and more control over the sound of each individual element in a recording. And along with that was a, the development of an isolated acoustic space. In other words, it was isolated from noise from the outside world. So one could capture a performance in a more or less pristine fashion. Um, that was a wonderful development, except that there's a great deal of expense required uh, to put together a facility like that. And it also creates a little bit of an artificial environment. Uh, to ask a musician to come into a, a studio where some great amount of money is being spent per hour uh, to pay for a recording to be made and expect them to perform at the highest level. Well, a lot of things have to come together in order for that to happen. And um, so challenges were, you know, keeping the session moving, keeping everybody happy, uh, capturing that sort of moment of inspiration when it happens and being ready for it. Um, and, and then beyond that, um, you know, maintaining the assets and archives and, and all of the things that came with analog and then digital tape back in the day, those were all, um, those were all challenges. How, how does Isotope play into that? Because it, it seems like as long as you were ready for the inspiration, you could hit record and keep things going. Where, well, where does Isotope a... fit into that kind of thing? Yeah. So, um, you know, first of all, the the idea that you expect inspiration to, or that, that moment of inspiration to strike when you're in the studio paying X number of dollars per hour um, well, you know, that, that may be an unrealistic expectation. And um, not only are there many instances in my career where I can remember sort of feeling like, gee, you know, the performance that ended up in the cutting room floor was better, but we're going to accept this one. 
Um, but even, you know, you're out in the world. Uh, I used to do a lot of uh, traveling with my partner who was a performer. And sometimes she would perform just unbelievably well out in the most unlikely scenarios. Being able to capture in those environments and being able to make use of that performance and bring it into, you know, make that be at the heart of the DNA of a finished recording that you were ultimately going to produce is something that we all longed for. But technology hasn't always supported that. We've had portable recorders that have not been especially high quality or very portable or easy to use. Um, You know, it's, it's certainly possible to take a laptop out on the road and make a recording. But even there, there's usually a couple of software layers. There's kind of setting up a session in a in a DAW, like Logic or GarageBand or what have you, and, and getting ready to hit record and making sure that everything's working before you're ready to go. So um, among other things, we've developed something called the Spire platform. Uh, so the Spire itself currently is a piece of hardware that has a very high quality microphone in it, very high, high quality microphone preamps in it. Um, it's also uh, web connected. So the minute you record in it, it it's controllable by an iPhone. Um, you can do a lot of signal processing on board. You can even do a little bit of mixing on board. But the key to this uh, story is that once you've recorded the audio and it's available in the cloud, you can then pull it into a desktop uh, or laptop environment and continue working on the projects. Um, so it's a, it's a way of, of getting a high quality capture in the moment on location, wherever that happens to be, and uh, easily be able to continue developing uh, the work from that point. So that's, that's one of the things that we're doing to help sort of address this problem. The, the second is, you know, as I said before, Having lots of individual tracks and channels, having exquisite control over each and every little element in a recording is wonderful, except that it's very easy to end up going down the rabbit hole where, you know, you spend 10 hours addressing some tiny little detail in a, uh, a recording, and then you zoom out and realize that, yeah, you, you've, you've got that detail nailed down, but you've sort of missed the big picture. You've missed the, the forest for the trees, as it were. And so in our software development, we've built a a protocol where all of our plugins can talk to each other and using some visualizations that we provide, allow users to actually manage complex relationships and see relationships across all those channels much more easily than is typical in the traditional digital audio workstation or, you know, certainly an analog desk and tape machine. Um, So those are two of the things that we're doing to help um, surmount some of these problems and hopefully make the um, music production, the act of music production more intuitive and, um, and assist in speeding up workflows. And it's not only about music production, right? It, it, this could be used for film to, to salvage an audio take that was caught out in the world but had wind noise. And, and well, so you wouldn't yes. have to necessarily redo it in the studio. You could use the take that was done on site. That's correct. And and so we, we make a product called uh, RX, which I would venture to say is, is used on virtually every major motion picture or um, sort of network 
television program soundtrack uh, that's out in the wild these days. Um, and we've got some Emmys to show for it, or an, an Emmy to show for it, I should say. Um, it um, What it, it allows one to do, and this kind of goes also back to the music capture story, is take location audio or production sound where you've got the recording um, of the performance that you want, but there may be some noise that in the past would have rendered that recording unusable. And using RX, we can take out, as you said, wind noise or clicks or pops or the sound of an airplane overhead or a bus, or we can even reduce the sound of cicadas. Uh, that's that's a big pain point for, I was just down in Atlanta um, doing a, an event with uh, production sound engineers, and they were asking lots of questions about crickets and cicadas. Um, but uh, all sorts of artifacts and defects of that location recording can be either modified, moderated, or even completely eliminated in order to make the location sound um, usable. I, I laugh a little bit because you said crickets. And, and of course, the apocryphal story is that Buddy Holly and the crickets were named so because when they were first playing in their garage, they had tons of cricket noise. <laughs> so you have to play loud to mask those crickets. Yeah, but it, but if I had RX, I, maybe they would have chosen another name. I'm not sure. So, um, but RX isn't just for for studio production or or this film production, TV production. You know, re- regular people who are doing things like a podcast, like this one, can use it too, right? That's correct. And anytime, I mean, you know, the phrase "it's a noisy world" comes to mind. So, anytime you're recording audio and are likely to have some kind of outside noise impinging on the sound, RX is something that can be a valuable tool. As you said, in in the context of podcasts, you might have, you know, a fairly quiet room, but there might be noise from the outside, or you you even might have problems with um, mouth noise. I mean, you know, anybody who records podcasts know that after a period of time, you, your mouth gets dry, you know, the microphones pick up sounds that we don't notice when we're speaking, but when we're listening to that speech, um, and suddenly I'm becoming very self-conscious that I'm making lots of mouth noise, <laughs> but you can fix that with RX later, right? Um, you know, there are all kinds of sounds that we can address to add some polish, you know, remove distraction, um, and uh, just overall improve the quality of the sound. And this runs on Macintosh, right? I have to, it has to be said. That's correct. It does run on Mac. Uh, we're currently on RX7. Um, uh, we also have some, we have some interesting developments in our products that have begun to show up more and more in the last few years that lean into uh, AI and machine learning. And one of them is relevant to what we're talking about in RX. There, there are several machine learning driven features, but one of them is something called Dialog Isolate. And in the past, what one's had to do with this kind of single-ended noise removal program is identify a noise and chase it and try to eliminate it to the best of your ability while not harming the original or the, the desirable signal. Now we've kind of flipped the script where using by training a neural network to understand what speech looks like, we can basically, using the program, say, I want to preserve speech, reduce everything else. So if you have a cough and a siren and a click and some broadband, you know, hissing kind of noise happening all at once with a single gesture, you can reduce all of that and pull it back so it's not as distracting from the the dialogue. 
uh, we're bringing some of that same technology to bear in something called the Music Rebalance Tool, where you can actually take a fully mixed musical object, if you will, and rebalance the vocals and drums and bass and other accompanying instruments against each other. Uh, it, it's We're approaching the point where we are beginning to be able to unmix. Um, and this is all leaning on AI and, and um, or machine learning, I think is probably a, a better descriptor than artificial intelligence, but I think everybody will understand what I'm getting at here. So if I had a track that was uh, a band recorded in a garage with background noise and, and cars going around, we could take that and the cars out. But if I had that track and it was already recorded and mixed and the, yes. the vocals were louder than everything else. That's right. So you can adjust with virtually imperceivable artifact, you can adjust the vocal down three, four, five dB and get a balance that actually you'll be happy with. When you go beyond that, if you get to a point where you're trying to eliminate the vocal, you're going to hear a little bit of artifact, but you're still able to uh, remix or rebalance a recording to a remarkable um, extent. That's actually interesting. So a lot of people will pull vocals out completely to do karaoke tracks. Yes. Is it possible to do the reverse? This is just a, a, a thing that I've been trying to do with my daughter, is to, to preserve the vocal and remove all the instrumentation. Yes. You basically have four faders, and if you pull everything but voice down, all you will hear is your daughter. And depending wow. on her age, that may or may not be a good thing. <laughs> well, that's that's always down to the performer, isn't it? That's right. You you can't fix the performer after the recording. Anyway, I, I have two daughters. Actually, my oldest is in a band, and and uh, I, I love my children, and I love her singing. Definitely, definitely. Um this has been great. What what else would you like our listeners to know about? Um, boy, that's a that's a wide hard... opened question. But yeah, but what it really have we is missed? Wide open. <laughs> well, I think the thing that's most interesting and makes Isotope really a fun place to be is that we are trying to reimagine the music production workflow and what and and. We're rethinking how we can use modern technology in order to move music production into a place where it, dare I say, is a little bit more fun and a little bit more intuitive while maintaining the high quality and high standards and enabling new things that weren't possible before. And I know that all sounds kind of like, um, you know, sort of promising the world, um, but it really is something that we live by and that we strive for. Um, and for someone like me, you know, where I have seen so many changes in music technology over the decades, some of which have been mind-blowing and have really kind of blown up uh, what was, you know, or, or added new capabilities that weren't possible before. It's really exciting. So to um, we're trying to sort of tear down, preserve what was cool from, you know, and, from, and preserve what's important from what we've done historically in the past. You know, we know how to design great sounding EQs and other filters and and compressors and the sort of traditional tools, but what is it that's new that we can do? And I think you're already seeing that show up in our products and um, hopefully you'll be seeing more of that as time goes on. So it's it's really fun. I love the way that technology gives us kind of um, new ways of being creative and adds to our creative vocabulary. And uh, so all of that's really exciting. And I think that's 
kind of at the, at the heart of where Isotope lives. Fantastic. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Where can we find out more? Uh, well, isotope.com, uh, that's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E.com would be a good place to start. We have lots of blogs and we have lots of, uh, we're really committed to learning. We have lots of learning uh, objects, blogs and uh, videos and other things, uh, downloadable sessions, um, as well as some more sort of general pieces that we write there. And uh, people can go there and we offer free downloads of all of our, uh, I'm sorry, trial downloads or demo downloads of all of our products. Um, we've also got an amazing uh, customer care and support um, group here. So if people have more questions, I would encourage them to write to us and, and please ask us anything. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. William, what'd you think of that? I love it when you get interviews on here. It's like, you know, you reach out to find the people who are actually doing things and making things happen. And I like this software. So, yeah, love all this stuff. Who can we have on next? Well, not certain, but we might. We just might have another app developer on. Uh, I'm an app developer. Is that some coded way of, oh, do I get double the fee? Is there a fee? <laughs> do I get any fee? <sighs> you get more tea. A... We oh, feed you sold. more tea. All yes. right, then. I'm on. Okay. All right. Well, William, where can people find you on the internet? Making tea, developing apps, and on Twitter as uh, W Gallagher or Apple Insider, William at AppleInsider.com. What about yourself? I am V Marks on Twitter. I am Victor at AppleInsider.com. And I am so glad, so glad that you joined us for this episode. We will be back next week, and I hope to see you then, too. <laughs>